So by now you've probably seen this. If you've ever wondered how intermittent fasting works for fat loss, calorie deficit. If you've ever wondered how keto works for fat loss, calorie deficit. If you've ever wondered how carnival works for fat loss, calorie deficit. If you've ever wondered how not eating after 6pm helps people lose fat, it's a calorie deficit. A calorie deficit is very simply consuming less calories than you need on a daily basis. How you create that deficit is up to you. You can either spend more or earn less. That's how you'd create debt in your bank. It works very similar. There are some complications and nuances, but that's it. Now, everyone's going to be in their camps of what's best, but ultimately it all leads to the same end result, creating a calorie deficit. And this. But this isn't the whole picture of weight loss. And as a trauma specialist and somebody who's had weight issues, I wanted to tackle this rhetoric because calories in, calories out and starving yourself isn't the whole picture and leaves a huge amount of people once again disempowered and unsure how to tackle their weight. Well, as an empowerment coach, I'm going to attempt to fix that today and show you why calories in, calories out to a fat and traumatized person is the equivalent to just have one to an alcoholic. Fat loss isn't just about what you eat. It's also about hormones. This is why I would say that not all calories are equal because of the post-eating effect that the food has on your body chemistry. For example, 100 calories of raw apple compared to 100 calories of apple juice is very different. Yes, it's 100 calories either way, but the effect of the processed apple on the body will be different due to the fibre in the apple or the removed fibre from the apple juice. Fibre slows insulin reaction in your body because it takes longer to process. So let's have a little chat about those hormones. We're going to be looking at five hormones today mostly, so let me introduce you to these guys and what they do. Ghrelin increases food intake by up to 30%. Ghrelin has also been shown to act on regions of the brain involved in reward processing, such as the amygdala, leading to a further enhancement of food intake. In addition to increasing appetite, ghrelin plays a role in mediating the whole body glucose and energy homeostasis, which is the balance within the body. Ghrelin stimulates the release of growth hormone, which, unlike ghrelin itself, helps to break down fat tissue and causes the buildup of muscle. It is also suggested that ghrelin suppresses insulin secretion from the pancreas to reduce glucose storage in the organs. You can see with ghrelin that there is also a protective effect on the cardiovascular system. New studies also propose that it plays a role in mediating memory and stress, which may be the result of unknown signaling pathways of the ghrelin system in the hippocampus and the amygdala in the brain. But future work identifying these unknown pathways need to be done to see how this affects diseases and issues such as Parkinson's disease, anxiety and depression. Leptin is a hormone released from fat cells in adipose tissue. Leptin signals the brain in particular to an area called the hypothalamus to stop eating food when there is enough. Leptin production is directly linked to the amount of fat cells that you have in your body. So if you have high amounts of fat, you should have high amounts of leptin. Obese people tend to have unusually high levels of leptin 
However, we also tend to see an issue called leptin resistance, which means that the brain doesn't respond to leptin in the same way as it would for somebody with a healthy body weight. This causes issues for obvious reasons. Leptin is supposed to stop you wanting food because you have enough body fat. However, if you become leptin resistant, you won't feel that and so you will continue to be hungry. The next hormone we were looking at is cortisol. Now, cortisol is a steroid hormone that is made in the cortex of the adrenal glands and then released into the blood, which is then transported all around the body. Almost every cell contains a receptor for cortisol. And so cortisol can have lots of different actions depending on which sort of cell it's acting upon. These effects, including controlling the body's blood sugar levels and thus regulating metabolism, acting as an anti-inflammatory, influencing memory formation, controlling salt and water balance, influencing blood pressure and helping development of the fetus. In many species, cortisol is also responsible for triggering the processes involving giving birth. This is insulin. Insulin is released from the pancreas into the bloodstream so that it can also reach different parts of the body. Insulin has many effects, but it's mainly used to control how the body uses carbohydrates found in certain types of food. Carbohydrates are broken down by the body to produce a type of sugar called glucose. Glucose is the main energy source used by cells. Insulin allows cells in the muscles, liver and fat to take up this glucose and use it as a source of energy so that they can function properly. Without insulin, cells are unable to use glucose as a fuel and they will begin to start malfunctioning. Extra glucose that is not used by the cells will be converted and stored as fat so it can be used to provide energy when glucose levels are too low. In addition, insulin also has several other metabolic effects, such as stopping the breakdown of protein and fat. Hormones released in times of acute stress, such as adrenaline, stop the release of insulin, leading to higher blood glucose levels to help to cope with the stressful event. Oestrogen is also an important hormone that I'm going to mention as in women it has a fat storing effect to protect against famine in pregnancy. Women of childbearing age tend to struggle with their weight and possible oestrogen dominance which can also be impacted by food, birth control and lifestyle choices. So how does all of this actually even affect your body based on trauma? Well, first up, let's take a little look at adverse childhood experience scoring. This is a score that was developed that allows us to evaluate the level of trauma in a child's life. And this is for people from the age of zero to 18. You can see here all of the types of abuse, neglect and household dysfunction that are ranked. The more of these that you experienced in childhood, the more your score will be for an ACEs score. You can also begin to see that the higher your ACE score, the higher the likelihood for certain behaviours and physical and mental health issues going forward. The higher your ACE score, the higher the likelihood that you will have impacts physically and mentally as a, re as a result in older age. We know that not only traumatic events impact your behaviour, but they also change the brain. 
Depending on the traumatic event, as well as the individual, the effects of emotional trauma on the brain can range from minor to dramatic. Trauma changes chemistry within the brain as well as structure, and these effects start to impact normal functioning. Specifically, the effects of trauma on the brain seem to impact the amygdala, the hippocampus, and the prefrontal cortex. Changes to the amygdala is really important when looking at trauma. The amygdala is the emotional response center for the brain and helps people perceive and control their emotions. It also plays a role in emotional memories and fear response. When somebody experiences a traumatic event and is showing signs of PTSD, their amygdala often becomes more active than it normally would be. Studies have shown continuously that the amygdala of somebody with PTSD has an increased function in response to stimuli that remind them of trauma and other fear-related stimulus. This basically means that if you have had trauma and you are suffering from PTSD, you also perceive more trauma, creating more trauma reactions in your life. The hippocampus has also been affected by trauma. The hippocampus is associated primarily with learning and memory. Brain scans have shown that the hippocampus has been decreased in function with people with post-traumatic stress disorder when they are exposed to something that reminds them of trauma. Not only is the function of the hippocampus affected by trauma, but also the structure may change as well, depending on how severely the person has been affected by their trauma. Those with PTSD were found to have significantly smaller hippocampi than those who were exposed to trauma but not experiencing PTSD. In this case, the effects of PTSD on the brain are more severe than trauma exposure alone. Last but not least, the prefrontal cortex. The effects of trauma on the brain also extend to the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that is responsible for executive functioning or higher level thinking and reasoning. People with PTSD have been found to have a decreased function and activation of the prefrontal cortex when exposed to traumatic reminders. This may account for any irrational fears that trauma victims have and trouble overcoming. Whether subtle or significant, trauma changes the brain in several ways and can lead to lasting negative effects. Your brain becomes calibrated for the world that you were born into and live in. I heard a phrase the other day that describes this perfectly. If you're born into a burning house, you believe that the whole world is on fire. This is so right, particularly for children in traumatic homes. Our minds bodies and hormonal profiles become equipped for war, for trauma, for suffering long-term, forever. We believe that all the world is suffering, and so that is, in effect, all that we can see. Our ACE scores affect our world and our view and experience of it too. So how does trauma affect your hormones? Well, trauma sensitizes something called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, or HPA axis for short. This is the body's central stress response system. You can think of this as an intersection of our central nervous system and the endocrine system, the system that creates hormones. 
Because trauma impacts the HPA axis, it affects our hormones, especially adrenaline, cortisol and oxytocin. Oxytocin is the love hormone and adrenaline is that pep-up hormone. And we talked about cortisol previously. Trauma makes us more reactive to stressors and more likely to increase the stress hormone cortisol. In certain situations, hormones like cortisol are very important. Think if you're being chased by a wild animal, the adrenaline kicks in to help you get out of danger's reach. But when you're not actively in danger, trauma keeps your body in a revved up state, putting serious mileage on your body. Cortisol can be toxic when it is chronically high, ultimately leading to increased risk of health conditions such as depression or heart disease. Once the stresses of life are removed, the body's hormones should respond in kind. But the only problem is, is that a body that has been exposed to long-term trauma actually continues to produce these hormones, which leads to more long-term negative effects on the body. This puts you at an increased risk for anxiety, depression, heart disease, sleep disruption, weight gain and memory concentration damage. Trauma also reduces the release of oxytocin, which is a love hormone that promotes sociability and the relationship between the mother and child as well as romantic partners. Early trauma decreases oxytocin levels in the brain and affects its receptors in childhood and later life. Oxytocin is also responsible for mood boosting, working as a protective buffer against stressors. Having lower levels of oxytocin could mean less protection and less ability to adapt. Trauma also leads to an increase in long-term inflammation, which is an immune response to foreign invaders or damaged tissue. Whilst inflammation is good in the short term, its main culprit behind heart disease and autoimmune diseases if it is a chronic issue. The physical and emotional pain of trauma can also lead to unhealthy habits like smoking or drinking to numb emotions or overeating as a way of self-comforting. The Adverse Childhood Experience Study found that as somebody's quantity of, a tra- of traumatic experiences increased, so did the chances of engaging in negative health behaviours such as smoking or drug use. So if this is you, please be aware that this is not your fault. This is something that often we don't have a huge amount of awareness over. It's not talked about enough and we're often left struggling without a true understanding of what's going on in our bodies. In a study of 21,904 middle-aged women that took place in 2012 to 2013, the researchers found that women who had experienced at least one traumatic event in their lifetime were 11% more likely to become obese compared to women who had not experienced any traumatic events. The risk of becoming obese was 36% higher for women who had experienced at least four negative life experiences within the last five years compared to women who had no experience of negative life events. They found a direct correlation between that the more negative life events endured, the higher the risk of obesity. So how is trauma and weight affected? 
Well, the major adverse childhood experience study found that more than 6 million obese and morbidly obese people are likely to have suffered physical, sexual and or verbal abuse during childhood. Millions more will point towards other types of childhood trauma as the cause of their weight issues, living with a mentally unwell family member, for instance, or an alcoholic parent. A considerable body of research now shows that PTSD is associated with an increased risk of women becoming obese. Still, we are blaming the individual, especially if they're women, and that isn't even taking into account the effect of estrogen. In the ACE study, many participants said that overeating had become a beneficial part of their life in early life. Binge eating became a source of comfort and protection from sexual abuse. Another connection between childhood abuse and obesity might be a desire to desexualize, gaining weight as a mean of protection against more abuse. It's clear that mistaking overeating just as an addiction overlooks the complexity of the actual problem. When food is used to manage emotional distress at an early age, undoing this condition as an adult becomes very tricky. Binge eating, for instance, can be a compulsive but distressing feedback loop. A person may eat large amounts to feel better, feel disgusted with themselves for doing so, and they may purge. The subconscious need to emotionally soothe with food in this way speaks of deep, unexplored shame and pain. Once that shame, literally weighing the body down, begins to open up and be accepted in a safe space, there is potential for relearning how to reroute these destructive patterns. The food we eat also affects the way that our body responds with the hormones. Refined sugar is a pro-inflammatory food product and it contributes to and exacerbates inflammation, pain and depression. As we work to resolve trauma, the often forgotten or missing piece is how sugar plays a role in depression, mood and pain. Cortisol is also responsible for raising blood sugar levels to give us that get up and go feeling. But in response to complex trauma, cortisol is often low and cannot raise those blood sugar levels. This often leads to sugar cravings and in turn eating lots of sugar and refined carbs. Over time, this results in unreliable blood sugar and symptoms of irritability, shakiness or feeling like rubber or dizziness. This is called reactive hypoglycemia and it underlies the ups and downs that we call mood layability when in fact it may be a sugar imbalance. Our sugar intake leads to inflammation in the body and we may or may not feel this low burning fire but if we have pain we have inflammation. Inflammation in turn disrupts cytokines and the immune function and depletes serotonin and other neurotransmitters. Thus, the cycle of mood, depression and pain continue. Giving up refined sugar does not mean that we cannot enjoy sweetness of life and foods and we can replace this with natural alternatives and it will help your mental health issues. Food addiction is very, very difficult to remedy, particularly in those who are using it as a source to soothe their trauma. Food becomes a source of comfort to the traumatized, often becoming the very first way most addicts begin to soothe their fractious nervous system. Unlike other addictions, however, you cannot go cold turkey on food. Heroin, for instance, is rather hard to get a hold of and comes with societal risks. But sugar is everywhere, peddled even in clothes shops now. The sweet treat is a morphine of the traumatised masses.
The obesity epidemic has reached overwhelming stats over the last 50 years, not only due to diet and lifestyle changes, the increase of food-like products, but also due to the increasing levels of stress in daily life. Everything in modern life is anti-health, from the effects of blue light on the circadian rhythm from electronics to pollutants in the air and water, high sugar levels in every packaged food to 40-hour weeks, cost of living increases, pandemics, mental health issues, soaring, the list goes on. But I want to touch on something that often isn't spoken about, and this is the psychological and subconscious view of fat. Fat is a coat of safety. From a subconscious point of view, being fat can serve an important role of keeping us safe from further trauma. For instance, as a woman, it can make us appear more strong or a larger, less frail target, which feels safer. For those of us who have been sexually assaulted, making ourselves seem less attractive also serves a function subconsciously. This, however, is not to imply that I consciously believe that women looking attractive is the cause of sexual assault. But as a person who has been raped in adulthood, I do consciously battle with the idea that perhaps if I weren't attractive to that man, what happened wouldn't have happened. And thinking in regards to my own life, I did gain weight again after being assaulted on what I think was my 27th birthday. From a primordial perspective, fat makes us feel safer because fear of starvation is probably one of the strongest fears a human would have experienced up until now. And so a coat of fat can literally feel like a coat of safety. A fat loss without trauma healing is just not possible. If we focus only on fat loss without healing the trauma, we're just not going to be able to lose the weight. Or we may be able to, but we'll see it come back on over time. This is often because, particularly with sexual assault victims, weight loss makes us feel very vulnerable. And so, gaining weight, although counterintuitive, is a subconscious coping mechanism. You cannot heal your mind without healing your body and vice versa. When I work with a client to deal with mental health issues, we look at your life from a holistic point of view because healing means everything is healed. If you don't heal your body, that will affect your mind's health. If you don't heal your mind, it will affect your body's health. The connection is obvious and yet underwhelmingly dealt with in Western medicine. To heal your body, you must amend the conscious and heal the subconscious, you must amend the body. Food and mood go hand in hand. What you eat directly impacts your hormones. What you think directly impacts your hormones. The issues of unresolved trauma in the body and mind can and do change everything in your life. From your habits to your beliefs, and you should know by now if you've been following my work long enough, that your beliefs become your behaviours, which becomes your habit, which then in turn becomes your future. Weight loss measures before healing your trauma are probably wasted energy. Your subconscious patterning is so strong that even if you manage to fight your brain, hormones and primordial hardwiring for food, you will probably find that you gain back the weight during times of stress due to the hormones and your subconscious trying to protect you. 
I've found this is the case for me. I lose and gain the same 30 pounds. And this is less to do with my eating habits or exercise regime, but more to do with my trauma bone and subconscious acting against me. Ultimately, I feel safe at this weight. I don't feel that I am going to be attacked half as much as when I do when I am slim. Weightlifting has helped me a lot and rather than being a simple theory of thermodynamics and calories in, calories out, weight training helps me to feel strong which allows my subconscious to release some of that fear of being attacked. Rather than needing to be too heavy to kidnap, (laughs) I, I can be too strong to attack. It may all seem like mental gymnastics of a fat person in denial, but these are all truthful and reasonable feelings to the subconscious self. We must look to remedy the way that trauma is experienced in the mind and the body. This means intentionally calming the nervous system as often as possible. If you're traumatised, you can see from this webinar that you have an overreactive nervous system that triggers stress hormones too much and for much longer than non-traumatised people. Lifestyle habits like caffeine, stress, lack of exercise and not being in control of our thoughts all lead to overactivity of stress in the body, leading traumatized people to be in fight or flight more often, meaning they trigger fat storage hormones more often, suppressing leptin and creating a perfect storm for obesity. So it's not your fault, but it is always your responsibility. By recognising weight loss for traumatised people isn't as easy as calories in, calories out and cardio and in fact these two approaches alone will probably cause weight gain due to increased cortisol and stress reaction again. We can take efforts that will see us release excess weight by changing and healing trauma and amending our ineffective subconscious approach to weight. This is less an excuse and actually more an actual roadmap towards health and towards weight loss. Rather than focusing solely on your diet and exercise regime, incorporate a relaxation regime too. Focus on low-intensity cardio like walking so as not to increase your cortisol. Meditate, eat a high-protein diet and do not ever starve yourself. You must eat enough, which means 2,000 calories minimum as a lightly active female. Get outside, do breath work, avoid caffeine, minimise your stress, work on your limiting beliefs, release your trauma. All of these will allow you to hit your goals, which is why calories in, calories out does not work for people living with trauma. My name is Laura of Attraction. Thank you so much for being here and for supporting my work and my own personal journey to battle my demons, my mental health, my diagnoses and my weight. If this has helped you or you enjoyed it, please like or consider following or subscribing to help me to help others like me. I'm sending you infinite love and gratitude.